All right, welcome everyone to the X Umbras podcast. Uh, Scholar McLaren here, and with me is Schoolman Fawcett, and uh, I am a lowly teacher under Headmaster McClarney at the <laughs> Chesterton Academy of Saint Isidore Learning Center, the world's first and to date only online Chesterton Academy. And if you're interested in what a class at our online Chesterton Academy might look like, uh, this is a, a great way to find out. In fact, yeah. this is uh, not just a class, but this is like having a guest lecturer today. We're re- breaking new ground here on the Exomers podcast. Indeed, yes. And with us is uh, Dr. Nathan Pinkowski. He is the Assistant Professor of Humanities at the Hamilton Center at the University of Florida. And we are very happy to have him here on the show to discuss Abolition Man, C.S. Lewis. And we also have, I, I suppose, another reason for having him on the show is he's a graduate from our district. So, right. so uh, uh, alumni, illustrious alumni. Uh, and so we're happy to discuss a little of your um, your take on, on Lewis and, and Abolition of Man. So I guess thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for joining us. So just to jump out of the gates, can you just briefly, what is Abolition of Man? Why is it? Uh, significant? Why should we pay attention to some work from, well, not quite 100 years, but 80 years uh, old now? Like this, uh, it's it's 2020 something now. (laughs) So forget (laughs) 1943, like what's going on? So what's- Yeah, it's almost coming up to its, uh, uh, well, we're actually, yeah, in fact, in the 80th anniversary of it, uh, because at least in the lecture. So what the way Abolition of Man was set up was it was a series of lectures, three lectures, um, that uh, Lewis gave uh, right in the middle of the Second World War, uh, the University of Durham, uh, right in in 1943. So the book we get is his uh, is is the version of that lectures prepared for prepared for publication. And I think just to be uh, provocative right from the very start, I think we should think of this as and why it's important uh, because it's one of the great and it should be read as such, one of the great dystopian texts of the oh. uh, 20th century. Now, what does it mean by that? Surely uh, you might think, oh, this is mostly a philosophy text. How is uh, yeah. how is it a dystopia You know, on the lines of, I don't know, um, 1984, George Orwell's 1984, or Aldous mm-hmm. Huxley's Brave New World. Well, yeah. um, I put it to you that when we're trying to think about um, when we're trying to think about what a dystopia is, it's about identifying the you know uh, the troubling, most troubling trends indeed in our society, and imagining what the what the implications of those are, where they would take us. And that's what you get in this uh, in this book. That's this is the philosophical version of it. And then, if you want the literary version, right? The literary version would be Lewis's novel *That Hideous Strength*. Uh, so both are connected. I think uh, if you're philosophically minded um, and listening to this, then this is the book for you uh, because it outlines the those um, those troubling implications in the logical manner. Where does this logic of this particular way of thinking take us? But if you want the literary version. Uh, that's alongside it. Then we have to go to that hideous strength. So that's what I put it to you: is the is the thing that makes this book um, uh, important for us to read now. It, it, it's one of the great dystopian uh, texts, and we need to understand what is Lewis focused on, what ca- what concerns um, does he have about where society is is going, and uh, why does he make this claim, which actually comes up um, in it. That if you follow the logic through, you end up with uh, quote the destruction of the society which accepts it. 
Now, this is peculiar because the subtitle does not say uh, the abolition of man, reflections on society, yeah. troubling trends in politics. Yeah. The subtitle is reflections on education with special reference to the teaching of English in the upper form of schools. Now, Dr. Pankowski, what does that have to do with totalitarian dystopian society? Yeah, right. So uh, I think, first of all, this is Lewis uh, uh, being glib. Remember, he's uh, he's an academic uh, and um, his uh, his most famous academic work at this at this stage is uh, a work that's not really, you know, people who read Lewis now don't really know it um, is the discarded image, uh, a work about uh, about the transformation of, of, uh, uh, of images that we use to understand the world from the late medieval period into the early modern period. Um, but uh, but I put it to you that it's actually contained in the title, even though the title's put up in a more technical way, uh, because what Lewis is worried about is what is going to be the impact of this way of teaching that we see in what he calls the green book uh, put out in society at large. And why he's focused on this book, it's an obscure textbook. We think we, we, we know the name of it now, but Lewis uh, hides the name of it, uh, doesn't mention the name of the real authors. Uh, for it. why why would you care about this little uh, this little textbook that is made its way into a few university classes? Uh, and it's precisely because of the pernicious form of education that it provides. That's what Lewis is worried ab uh, about. He's worried about you know what Machiavelli might call the effectual truth of the argument. There, there's there's a real truth too about the problem of the argument. But he's worried about the pretensions that people have who are putting these kinds of arguments there and distributing them en masse because they're trying to use it to change the way we think, the way future generations think, and the way future generations act. Yes, so the way the way people think, the way, and the way future generations will act. Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, now, one thing that comes to mind, and I don't know if this will take us too far afield, but our students do briefly touch on St. Thomas More's Utopia. Uh, and by the time they get to grade 12, we go through... Uh, brave new world so they're familiar with dystopia but usually presented dystopia meaning no place like no land right so it's this theoretical utopia i'm oh, sorry utopia, utopia utopia but i guess dystopia would be the question is is this taking place right so so is this uh dystopian in the sense of it's no land or i guess a, a, a bad version of what no land would look like or is this something that's taken root and now is uh, flourishing in our in our midst uh so okay, I know that. I know that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can go with that. But well, I think before we can answer that question, we have to talk about exactly what is he identifying as being the problem in modern education and the way he's teaching us to think. Right? It's it's yeah. funny, but it, as 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 you comment, Dr. Pankowski, I'm thinking about 1984 again. So uh -huh. that's the imaginative picture of a dystopia. But the appendix there, you know, you well, not even the appendix. There's the appendix on Newspeak, but really the companion piece is politics and the English language. Right, the essay yeah. that, that Orwell wrote about the way writing was going and how kind of vacuous it had become and how uh, a lot of nebulous language is being used in, in exchange for uh, concrete, shorter sentences. And I think you could, I think that's a very apt analogy between uh, 1984 and uh, that hideous strength and between politics and the English language okay. and this, yeah. the abolition of man, uh, which is also, which is responding to a, you know, he said a textbook. A, a textbook with the true title called uh, "The Control of Language." Right, that, that's the, yes. the real title of the great book is "The Control of Language." Now, that's an intriguing exactly. in its own right. That's a kind of technological approach to communication. You know, mm -hmm. how can you use language to 
as you mentioned, Machiavellian, achieve at a, a particular outcome. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a clue right there. So I think before getting into, do we see what it predicts taking root and flourishing today? Uh, let's get into it a little bit. What exactly does Lewis see as the, as, well, as a shorthand, we'll say the problem with modern education or the teaching of English in the upper form of schools? No, or, or, or what's wrong with control of language? What's wrong with control of language? Sure. Yeah. So, well, let's let's focus let's uh, focus on the first part of what you asked the 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 problem, the specific problem, and I think we can put it very simply as a philosophy of pure subjectivism, is what Lewis is uh, is identifying, um, and the example he uses is this example that um, that is a story told by the English Romantic poet um, Samuel Coleridge. Uh, two tourists come to visit a majestic waterfall. And looking upon it, one calls it sublime, and the other says, uh, yes, it's pretty. And Coleridge is disgusted by the response of the latter because mm. he thinks it's inadequate to the phenomenon at hand. Uh, and, but the way that the authors of the, of the textbook, of the Green Book, the way they extrapolate what the true lesson of this is, is that when the man says this is sublime, you know, in, in quotation marks, he looks like he's making a remark about the waterfall, appears to be making a remark about the waterfall, but actually he's not talking about the waterfall, but about his own feelings. So when we were talking and using the language of, of sublime or speaking about something that is beautiful, we're actually not talking about the object, we're describing our own state, our own feelings. And, the, and this then applies to not just the beautiful, but the good and the true, that we're actually just talking about our own language uh, as we uh, use it. And the, the, the philosophical um, lesson that the authors want to impart is that we're basically misusing language when we ascribe objective value to the world. Uh, and language properly used would not do that. Uh, and, uh, and one of the... Um, uh, one of the philosophical schools, which is in the background here, uh, which we discuss more if we want to, but I think it's important to see that this is in the background, is positivism. Um, this is the position associated with the logical positivism um, at the time. Uh, but I think we can it, we can see very quickly that this is an argument for relativism because it's saying don't assign any value to the world. Don't even assume that the world has any value uh, contained within it. All we can do is, and when we're, we're properly philosophically enlightened, all we're really doing is expressing our own feelings. You might think this about the about the waterfall. You know, you might think this about murder. Uh, you can you run the examples however uh, however you like. Um, you're not actually describing something that is real. All you're doing is is uh, is setting up your own feelings. Um, and uh, I think to go to the 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 other you know uh, broader point, like what's the 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 social effect of this. Lewis thinks that I think that the philosophical argument here, it's not that difficult to um, to uh, attack. He attacks it on grounds of coherence, of, of consistency, but it's when you get everyone thinking uh, in this manner, um, that's where the real uh, pernicious consequences are. And that's what he thinks is the, what, what, what's he say there at the, one line that, that this is why the, the paragraph contains that this, this little extrapolation of Coleridge that they give, this is why it contains all the steps necessary for title of the book, abol the abolition of man. This momentous little paragraph contains all the seeds necessary for the abolition of man, the destruction of humanity. Because what happens when it's put into, into practice? 
well, that begs for elaboration. Why would that, <laughs> why would saying oh you know I I, uh, I don't think the Rocky Mountains out uh, in Western Canada I don't really care so much for them. You might think they're beautiful, but I think they're an obstruction. I follow the policy of the Rhino Party back in the '90s that said we should plow the Rocky Mountains so that people in BC have a better view of the ocean. Right. I don't see any aesthetic value to them, right? Or the people of Alberta. Sure, yeah, yeah, of course, the prairie provinces yeah, would have yeah. a clearer view because really they're just obstructions to sight. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. You know, there's nothing exhilarating about a hike. It's really just an inconvenience or something. How does one get from that to dystopia, Dr. Pinkowski? You know, <laughs> Well, that's the partly the argument of the second and third uh, sections right. um, for how they play out. But but just just to I think cut to the to the chase and keep the question that you asked in in mind about control of language and and such. This is uh, this being the problem. Well, uh, one of the problems I think we we note very quickly is that if you're ascribing um, if you're ascribing if you're saying that that certain statements about the world. Um, are, are, are wrong-headed or such. You're asking people who have those kinds of judgments um, to recalibrate them, to say different things, right? Uh, and, and the task of educators is to control you and direct you away from using those expressions like this is sublime and towards, uh, towards the expressions of feeling uh, and such. So there's the, there's right from the start, we're, we're already on, should, uh, I think, intuit the totalitarian nature uh, about this. Um, but uh, but also, uh, I think very quickly, we have to understand that we're dealing with uh, background assumptions that require us to, to deny any objective value in the world. So it's not just going to be about the Rocky Mountains uh, or about your view of a particular waterfall. Um, it's going to be, which, as I said, your views about morality, your views about basic, um, the basic moral judgments about about uh, about murder, you know, about about theft, uh, uh, about about rape, right? About uh, these these very very uh, fundamental acti fundamental kind of, um, activities that we evaluate to be intrinsically wrong are immediately going to be called into question. So it's it's no surprise that this generation of logical positivists are also out there trying to deny that there is any such thing as an intrinsically evil act, an intrinsically immoral act, and this becomes part of the of the project of doing. So we have to see that that the that in the background of these kinds of casual assumptions or casual discussions about this might be beautiful to you, this might be beautiful to all, and someone might say, "Well, what is beauty anyway? It was all just something that we make up." Um, we ha we have to see the connection between other kinds of evaluations that we make about the world. And Lewis's contention in all of this is that the background assumption is a denial of objective value. And when you deny that there's reality in the world, then you are turning over authority to someone else to make and compose reality how that authority wants it to be. Hence the control of language part. So the limiting, the, the, the ways that, that limit are, are, that place limits upon how I can order the world uh, because I have to receive the world. That's my first, first position as a human being is I receive and respond to the reality that's already there. If that's not the case, then I can make the world however I want it to be. And I can force that upon others, uh, impose that upon others, who were caught up in the in the follies of thinking about the world in an objective manner, right? Um, mm -hmm. Those people, certainly there's a problem with the way they're thinking, a very serious problem. They need to be re-educated, right? First for the camps, you might say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, 
You're speaking about the abolition of kind of the idea of an objective value in the world. Uh, yeah. Why is the title then the abolition of man rather than the abolition of nature or something like that? Well, great. So I think that takes us into the into the second section a bit. Although uh, before I do that, I think there's there's a there's some nice little points at the end that I think is key for us to bear in mind, particularly for anyone who's engaged with the with the task of of education. Um, Lewis thinks that there's there's a process of uh, of human reasoning that we need to pay attention to that this account um, we're basically just saying objective world versus pardon me uh, objective world versus feelings uh, affirm feelings reject this notion of objective world there's a there's a, a serious distortion in the way in the way that this account understands uh, human beings understands the process of uh, of human reasoning, and Lewis makes a, a division. Uh, actually, we were talking just briefly before this about the, the Platonism of Lewis, how extent it goes. Well, he actually affirms a Platonic division here. He calls it head, chest, belly, but this corresponds to the tripartite uh, division of the soul that you see in the in the Republic. Um, head being the, the the rational part, chest being thumos, the spirit. And then belly being the the kinds of appetitive desires that we might have uh, for say um, for say eating, and um, where we get our identity as human beings, what makes us humans, isn't what we might immediately think. Oh, it's the head. That's what makes us humans. Mm -hmm. Not for Lewis. Lewis says that it's actually the chest. Why? Why is it this this thematic element? is where uh, is what matters because the chest is where we develop our character the chest is where we train our passions where we um uh where we uh organize the right relationship between head and the belly so the head governs the belly our reason governs our desires through our chest through our uh through our character uh, and um, what the authors of the book are doing, Lewis thinks, is uh, is creating men without chests. They are they are imagining a particular kind of human being that is understood by a, a false dichotomy, um, wherein the the notion of how you develop your character to respond to the world is being expunged, and uh, and removed. Uh, from from what it is to be a human being, so that's I think the first sense in the in the in the book in which the abolition of man comes up. Uh, we are talking about authors who are training men without chests, men that aren't really men, human beings that aren't really uh, human beings that are not being understood in terms of what Lewis is saying is the defining uh, factor of of uh, of human beings. Um, and so I think what's key here uh, for anyone interested in, in education and the purpose of education is that um, we understand the goal of education is not simply to transmit a set of facts, uh, not simply to transmit knowledge in that sense, but it's rather uh, to ensure that we train our desires and affections to respond to the world in the right way. And indeed, that's what uh, that's what Lewis thinks most of uh, most education uh, set out to do uh, for uh, for most of human history. 
Um, but uh, this new model is is turning away from that. Uh, so that's the I think the first sense we have to understand the abolition of math. I think there's another big sense. I alluded to it already. I'll put it on the table for us to so keep it in picture. The abolition of human society, the destruction of human society. Uh, the abolition of man in that sense is what comes up in the third uh, section in particular. But I think it's really important for us to uh, to grasp that first point, particularly um, for those of you like myself, like yourselves, uh, who are involved in the world of education and trying to, uh, and, and therefore in the business of training children, um, Train children to learn truths about the world and truths about about what they are as human beings and what they're supposed to do. I'll yeah. pause there for a second. <laughs> sure, sure. No, no, that's very helpful. And I think, uh, oh, there's lots, lots that you've mentioned there that I think we uh, just like to make some connections there. I know for our students, uh, be familiar with uh, Plato's tripartite soul and. Uh, we also we read through the the Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> we it's always which so are about character, I think. Yeah, well, understand <laughs> if you if you come into teaching it with the sense that oh, I'm going to teach you about uh, about a factual event that may have happened you know, several thousand years ago. Here are portrayals of the Greeks, you know, these kinds of very dry historical accounts. You expunge the what's exciting about the text. Yeah. But, but but what you're saying now about Lewis almost seems like uh, Homer's revenge modified because when we get to Plato's Republic, it's he's censoring uh, sure. <laughs> Homer, right? And for the demonic reasons, like he's creating this warrior society, and we need the the noetic uh, uh, bit that's going. And I mean, we look at I mean, obviously uh, great love for Plato, but also the dystopian elements of his Republic sure. when it comes to education and you know the myths and and so on that that he's. Um, Propounding. So here it seems like Lewis is almost a, you're saying the purpose is to train our desires and affections to respond to the world in an appropriate way, as it objectively is. So this is almost a um, correction, perhaps, or a, a response then to Plato's censoring of, of Homer in some ways. Uh, right. But, well, uh, and what it reminds me of is something that we discussed in our episode on artificial intelligence with uh, Pascal. Uh, right, how Pascal speaks yeah. of these sort of three layers, I suppose, of oh, reality. Right, where there's matter, that's where somewhere someone like Alexander the Great rules in this area. That would be sort right, of the right, right. belly. Uh, uh, and then you have mind above that, and that's where you have the great Greek philosophers. And then for yeah. Pascal, the highest level is the heart. Right, love is greater than intellect, which Jacques Maritain said was the great insight of Christianity. So we have this important, um, you know, if all you have is the Homeric. That's problematic. Right. So Plato kind of uh, stresses the importance of the intellect, but yes. that on its own is problematic too. And then Christianity brings something that's sort of higher and is kind of the revenge of Homer in the sense that that's now redeemed, right? Now, heart is actually the unifying factor. You know, yes. That matter yes. I, I, maybe there's something Lewis is, I mean, Lewis is obviously platonic, but he's primarily Christian in a way yeah. that I figure like maybe George Grant isn't. Right. Uh, because okay. something that I hear sometimes people say, and I know what they mean, is that well, nowadays people don't know how to do critical thinking. Right. And in a yeah. sense, they're right. Yeah. But I don't think that's the problem. I think students are taught to do nothing but critical thinking in some ways, right? Ah. They're taught to do nothing but deconstruct. Okay. They're taught to do nothing yeah. but let's try to find the flaws. Let's try to see what is the historical contextual reason behind yeah. Yeah. what are all the sexist, economic, uh, yeah. oppressive elements behind the novel yeah. that we're reading or something like that. Right, right. Now yeah. that and, they, and that may have its place. But what's missing actually is the chest 
right? What you have is like the head and the belly, but the but that yeah. kind of the affection that ought to be inspired by a reading in the classics or looking at great art or listening to great music that is so uh, diminished by this kind of overcritical thing that we have. And I, and in fact, a, a dystopian government uh, is in some ways nothing but a brain. You know, it's nothing. Right. But, it's uh, it's like the yeah. Moloch right in Allen Ginsberg's Howl or something like that, right? It's uh, nothing but a, it's it's the machine, right? right. It's, the, it's the you know the AI in some ways. So so I think it's important that Lewis is. Uh, it strikes me that Lewis is being Platonic, but he's primarily being Christian, right? He's right. putting that, sure. tri that that tripartite decision through the lens that it is that love is actually the, def the definitive quality of a human being not just that they're rational animals but that we're ultimately in the image of god yeah i um, almost find myself agreeing with you here we, oh we sometimes go back and forth on augustine or aquinas or you know like plato or aristotle uh then you got um, well aquinas and then scotus right who's going to emphasize the will or the heart uh, above the intellect sure. but you no know, i think i think Probably that franciscan <laughs> that's right yeah yeah, yeah. so now this, this is interesting uh, because something that we were also discussing so as you're listening to this it may seem like oh well this is clearly one of c.s lewis's devotional works that goes along with mere right now yeah. lewis maintains that's not what he's doing do we, he says this is not supposed to be theistic or uh a in, 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 well he says an indirect Only argument indirect. It, no no it's not yes not yeah. an indirect argument for these when he gets into the doubt so sure maybe yeah do you want to do you want to yeah well, so because we were just alluding there to book two so i don't know if you want to just give us a quick. Uh, he speaks of the Tao, the Tao, the Tao. So let's. Uh, can you expound for us what he means by that and what the relevance yeah, and is? And what's going you? on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think the one, the one of the questions I just to connect from what you were just talking about uh, about loves, is that yeah. love uh, is about um, is about. This is a bit Augustinian and riff of me, but I think it's a, it's a useful one, right? Love isn't just about uh, about one single monolithic thing. It's a rather about kinds of loves. And the, the real challenge that we have as human beings is how to order them, how to rank them, uh, how to put them in their proper place. And the the argument that you effectively get from the first section is that the chest, um, which is, I think you're quite right to talk about, this is related to uh, love um, gives us the experience of um, of the objective world, moral truths, aesthetic truths. So what ex what is that experience actually? Uh, what is this world out there and what's described? Well, that's where the second uh, section comes in. That's what is the the towel. Uh, and um, uh, just to keep the point to the to the text here, um, Lewis uh, thinks when he's talking about the towel that he's um he's talking about a kind of uh moral uh system um that is in effect our collective moral heritage the the body of human ethical knowledge uh, that transcends time and place so it's contained in all the great religions christianity buddhism islam uh west and east um and all these different moral systems uh uh, share recognizable universal features and uh, propositions. Now, of course, they disagree about things. And Lewis isn't saying, well, they all just come down to the same thing. It all just is, uh, it, it's all just uh, uh, the same. He's certainly not um, not doing that. Uh, there are disagreements that emerge and very serious ones, but the way we resolve those, those disagreements or um, 
we could even say to use a kind of uh, McIntyrean language, the way we get a better understanding of our of our disagreements is by reference to the Tao. So it's an internal reference uh, that that is required for us to uh, to better understand the disagreements uh, and better understand the the similarities. Um, and uh, and conversely, then Lewis's claim is that all values. Uh, that we have come from the Tao. If you reject the Tao, mm -hmm. then you have no basis outside of it for anything that looks like a value system. And most people, Lewis calls them innovators. Uh, most people who say yeah. that they're in making up something new are in fact riffing off the Tao, right? Uh, riffing on the Tao, their, their philosophy is in fact parasitic on it. Um, yeah. The really dangerous people, pointing ahead to the next section, right? Are those who are claiming to invent something new uh, but this is this is in effect the claim that Lewis is is making about what the Tao is. It's our it's our shared moral heritage. 